So tonight's message is, is called A New Normal, and it connects with what Ezra read a few minutes ago from Revelation, but uh, I will explain how in a few minutes, so why don't we stand up and read uh, the passage together now. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. This, these words are the words of life. They are able to make you wise for salvation. They're able to correct you, instruct you, grow you, nourish you, uh, and so listen uh, carefully. This is from Romans 5, 1 through 11. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that's what we talked about last week, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into His grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And this hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Jesus? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more now, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together before we jump into this. Lord Jesus, uh, Morgan said it well a minute ago, uh, we find ourselves neck deep in the middle of the semester. Maybe this week's a uniquely hard week for us. Um, Folks who went to fall conference are coming back, maybe sleep deprived and behind on school. Folks who are at a wedding might feel the same way, uh, busy all weekend and now playing catch up. Or maybe just the The toll of the semester, uh, two months in and a month and a half to go, maybe the toll is just wearing us down. Maybe our attention span is shorter. Maybe you seem to be in the fog and we have trouble seeing you or feeling your presence now. And so, Jesus, that's our way of telling you we are needy tonight. We all need you. We bring our weakness before your strength. We bring our helplessness before your strong arms and your gracious heart. And we pray that even tonight, you would do what you say your word does. It brings people to life. Uh, It revitalizes us. It refreshes us. And so we pray, we plead with you, through your spirit, who you just said in this passage, you have poured out for us. Would you again tonight um, pour out your love to us? Would we be able to sense it? and be encouraged by it. We ask all of this in your name and for your sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, thanks. Why don't you take a seat? So most of y'all were born in America. I know there's a few few friends of ours here from Brazil or born in Mexico, but uh, regardless of where you grew up, you're probably familiar with the stories of the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island because they are at kind of the center point of what it means to be an American, right? These immigrant stories of uh, between 
well, around the turn of the century, between like the late 1800s and the early 1900s, 25 million immigrants left places all over Europe, a few other countries around the world, but they left there in mass, and 25 million people showed up and passed the Statue of Liberty and, and landed in Ellis Island where they were processed and kind of put into the system and they became citizens. But a few months before all of those people passed the Statue of Liberty and went through all the paperwork to become a U.S. citizen, they left a port back home. And they got on some rickety ship and they sailed across the Atlantic Ocean. It probably took two or three months to do that. Uh, but when they left that port, they uh, faced this fork in the roads, this crossroads. As their one foot is kind of planted in the soil of the place they did life, the place they knew, their home, their family, their business, their possessions, their inheritance, that was where their back was now turned to. And their foot is hovering over this gangway, and at some point their weight leaves home what they knew, and it steps on this ship. Because they had heard somehow through maybe family members or uh, newspaper accounts about the new world or uh, a new life, new potential, new opportunities in America. And so these people are, are faced with the prospect of literally laying down their lives as they knew it. Precious things that they are having to leave behind in order to embrace a new life, a new normal, in a new place. Now, this is personal because uh, for almost everybody in the room tonight, you are sitting here now because someone up your family tree uh, had to die to life as they knew it in Ireland, Poland, Germany, England, Italy, uh, Africa in a lot of places, uh, uh, China, Someone in your family tree had to turn their back on all that they knew uh, to embrace a new life here, and that's trickled down through the ages to you. And so we're all, in a sense, part of this immigrant story. Uh, but here's the point, and here's kind of, I don't know, where this goes with us. is For your ancestors, if you have a family tree that went back across the Atlantic Ocean, for your ancestors, for a lot of them it was an easy decision to come over here. Uh, when, they, when you get to the Statue of Liberty, the inscription on the bottom of the statue sounds a little offensive at first, uh, but it's actually, when you know a little bit of context, it makes sense. But it says this. The Statue of Liberty says this. If you've ever been, ever been there, you've read it. It says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe life, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these the homeless, the tempest-tossed to me, and I will lift my lamp beside the golden door. I don't know what it means to lift your lamp beside a golden door. But I do know that uh, this seems to us like a backhanded, insulting welcome. It's like, hey, welcome to my house, you uh, worthless piece of refuse, <laughs> you, you wretched piece of trash. But to the people who were coming on those ships and reading that inscription, they knew what life back home was like. And so when they read that inscription, they're thinking, these people know me, and they know what life was like for me back in the old country. Because if you know any of the context of these stories, what life was like back in Italy or Germany or Ireland is oppressive governments, Napoleon, other monarchs or tyrants who kind of had their people stuck under their thumb. Uh, you could work your butt off for the rest of your life, and you would go nowhere 
economically, you would go nowhere status-wise. You were born into whatever class you were in, and that's where you died. No mobility, no education, poverty. And you know, and what's worse about it all is you know it's all futile. There is no movement, no opportunity. Um, and so these people, when they see the Statue of Liberty in this inscription, and it says, give me your tired, give me the suffocated ones who are yearning for the breath of freedom. Give me your huddled masses. Give me the hopeless. Give me the homeless. They saw their name on that invitation. That welcome was specific to them because that's what life was like for them. And that's why that inscription uh, made sense to them. And so this is why it was a little bit of an easier decision, though still scary, for people in your family tree, it was somewhat of an easier decision for them to leave that behind, leave the suffocation, the oppression, the death, the misery behind. And somebody had to take a risk to, to let go of a familiar but miserable life in order to embrace an unfamiliar, uncertain, but promising high potential new life in a new place. Somebody had to transfer the weight of their life onto this boat that was going to carry them to this promised new place. That is faith, right? That is risky. That is a big gamble in a sense. You better hope your family members who went on before you, you better hope that the newspaper was telling the truth because there's no going back three months across the Atlantic on this ship and you've already said goodbye to all of, uh, all of life as you knew it. So all of these people get here, 25 million of them in a span of 40 years. And of course, America wasn't all it was cracked up to be. But in some key places, in terms of you're not going to be persecuted for your religion here. Uh, the government's not after you. The government's not out to get you and to keep you down uh, like other places. There is uh, upward mobility there is a penetration of other social classes. So if you're born uh, in poverty, you don't have to stay in poverty. Here, if you work your butt off, you make more money. Ideally, it's not perfect. But there tends to be movement. There tends to be reward for suffering, reward for backbreaking work. Okay, so these people, it's not perfect, but they see that this stuff is beginning to come true. This is a better place uh, compared to what their countries were like back in that time. And here's how this connects to us in the passage that we just read from Romans 5. Paul is talking to a room full of spiritual immigrants, in a sense, when he writes this passage to, to these Christians. Spiritual immigrants like you, like me. Okay, so he's talking to people who somewhat recently, even if you're 20 years old, that's still kind of recent if you, maybe you became a Christian when you were a kid, or maybe it's pretty recently you became a Christian. Uh, and I know not, that doesn't describe everybody here. I'll talk about that in a second. But Paul is primarily writing this uh, passage to spiritual immigrants, people who still very specifically remember what life is like in the old land, people who are still frustratingly shaped by old patterns, old accents, old habits, people who still brought kind of these stubborn stowaways on the boat with you into Christianity, things like fear, things like uncertainty, Things like, is God, to use the metaphor, is God going to deport me once he sees kind of how I'm living, how I'm acting, how weak I am? So Paul is writing a letter to people who, when they pass that statue, resonate with that as well. People who have, who have in a sense, entrusted at some point in their lives, the weight of your life has left the old 
that you knew, and you have let that weight come upon Jesus because you trust him enough to take you into this new life. Of course, when you get to the new shore, there's complexity. Of course, there's problems. Paul talks about it. We'll talk about it. But that's the primary person Paul is writing this to. Now, I said I know that doesn't describe everybody here. Some of you are at a place where maybe the old life, the oppression, the misery, the poverty feels normal to you. It's all you've ever known. You didn't know it was supposed to be any different. Paul here would be wrestling with you and confronting you and saying, it is supposed to be different. You were never meant for that. And he's going to be stirring up in you yearnings and longings for freedom, longings to not be enslaved to yourself, to not be enslaved to every selfish desire. Okay, and then some of you probably would describe your life as you, you see your need, you see your poverty, you feel the slavery. And so you've come down to the harbor as it, was, as it, are, as it, as it is, and you, and you feel like in your life you're doing this, and you're like, let me, make sh- let me see who this Jesus is one more time. Let me make sure he really can carry the weight of my life, the weight of my brokenness, the weight of my sin. Or better yet, can he ever get me to a place of wholeness? Can he ever bring me to newness, to renovation, to innocence? And so you spend your life at the edge of a gangway, checking out the ship. Can this ship get me where it says it's going to take me? Paul also speaks to you. This passage is for you as well. Uh, I just wanted to kind of say, wherever you are on the map, Paul's writing to you, but the, the first group of people is kind of particularly uh, in his eyes. Now, before we push on a little bit and get back to the passage, um, let's go back to the metaphor real quick. Because when these 25 million people land in New York City and they kind of go find their little apartments where there's like thousands of people in one building, uh, these are people who, of course, felt the fragility of life. They had trouble making ends meet. They all had to find a new vocation or a new trade, had to learn a new language, new cultural customs, new everything. Uh, And these also are people who very much remember what the old world was like. And so these are fragile people. These are people for whom life is hard. Um, And so even in America for these immigrants, they could still feel alienated. Okay, they were foreigners, now they've been made citizens, they were aliens, now they belong. There's a piece of paper saying you belong, but they still can feel ostracized sometimes. I don't know if I fit here. Uh, They can still feel discouraged, they can still feel oppressed, they can still feel stuck, stagnant, just like they did back home. Okay, so it's possible to still feel those things even though their status is totally different. Okay, does that make sense? So Paul is, Paul is looking at these spiritual immigrants who feel fragile, who still feel like they did in the old life, a life of death, a life of alienation from God, a life of distance, a life where you don't belong with God's people and you know it, where you feel you're at war with God. Um, Paul's writing to people who remember that, who feel weak, um, And so what Paul does, and what you need to hear, is what Paul does next when he hears you say, hey, this is what life feels like for me as a Christian. What Paul says is you need to see all the more clearly now um, this God and the way he rescued you. And so Paul starts kind of rehearsing back through all of these promises. We talked a little bit about them last week. 
But that's what he starts to doing. He's, he's, what he's doing is he's trying to show you how invincible you are in Jesus. Or how secure this new citizenship is. How freeing, how new this whole new life that you've been brought into is. That's what Paul's doing here. And so we need to see this. We need to be encouraged in this. And he's happy to oblige. And so there's a few bullet points that he goes through in the passage. And here's kind of, I'm always trying to show you connection points. So you don't just take my word for it that the Bible says this, but you see it for yourself. And so follow along with me uh, for a little bit here. Paul's talking about the great reversal that happens when Jesus makes somebody alive, when he justifies you, right? When he declares you righteous, when he declares that you measure up. That's huge. Remember when Paul said, all have fallen short of the glory of God? Justification is when God himself looks at you and says, but you have not fallen short of my glory. You measure up. You are right. You are innocent. You are good. That's a declaration. So Paul is going to go back through and and rehearse these things. And so we're caught in this tension between old life and newness, right? A new normal and the old familiar normal. Here's one of those tensions. Paul says in verse verse 1, Now you're justified by faith in Jesus. Well, how does that make sense against the backdrop of the old life, where we were justified... uh, where we, we feel like we're justified by our performance. We feel like we're justified by a whole host of things, like a GPA. So you're, you're, you're living your life in obedient service to this number that's going to open doors for your future and bless you and give you gifts and secure your future. And so your justification is in slavish obedience to school Not necessarily because you're just a diligent student, but because this number is your God, and it's going to bless you, and it's going to curse you. Paul is saying against that backdrop, you have been now justified by faith in Jesus. Okay, so feel the tension there. You feel the pull, especially if that's something you're tempted by. Paul's saying this justification by grace through faith, it happens against a backdrop of this old, messy stuff that we remember it's shaped us in habits, right? And those habits die hard. So that's one thing. Another, another way, justifying your relationship with God based on your progress in the Christian life. So you think God's uh, posture towards you, his thoughts about you are kind of on this little Richter scale. And when you're doing well, when you're performing well, God's pleased with you. And when you're not, kind of you're in the trough of that valley. God's posture towards you also is attached to your performance. And so, because you're fickle in all over the map, God himself is fickle in all over the map. And you never have assurance, never have security, never have predictability in your relationship with him. Paul is saying against that old life, old country, Jesus has brought you into a whole new normal, a new reality, where God has justified you by grace. You measure up because he says you measure up. Not because of anything you are or anything you've done. He says you measure up, and so you measure up. He goes on. Again, in the end of verse 1, he says, Now, new country, new normal. Now, we have peace with God. So what he's saying about the old, the life kind of left behind, it means gone is the old life of kind of sworn enmity against God. Why would we be at enmity against God? We'll see next week in the latter part of this passage how we're kind of all born 
into being at war with God, but basically we despise God because he's a king and because his authority and kingship threatens ours. But Paul is saying, gone are those days of butting heads with God because of his authority, because now you have seen what he's done with his authority. He wasn't using his power to abuse you and keep you under his thumb. He was using his power to cause you to flourish. All of his resources coming at your disposal for your benefit. And if you're alive in Jesus, you're beginning to see that now. And so there's this tension of the old ways where you were very suspicious of God. You despised him. You didn't want to be around him. He threatened you and scared you. And now you might feel little impulses of that, but, but generally you see God as a good God. You see his authority as the blessing in your life, not the, not the threat to your life. So Paul says, now you, Christian, are at peace. Settled peace. Definitive peace. Peace written, in a sense, in blood, not with eraser. Now we're at peace with God. He pushes on a few other things. Verse 2. Now we have access to the grace that you now stand in. So he says, gone are the flighty, fickle, fragile days where you never knew where you stood with God. Because when the Bible uses this language of standing in something, it's trying to kind of whisper in your ear stability like a rock, immovable, invincible. So what he's saying, now we have access. Jesus has given us access. He's left kind of the door open to God for us to come and go. And he says we have access, and he says that we stand in this grace. What he means is grace is your new address. It's where you live. It's where you do life. It's your new home, and it's permanent. Sink your roots in it, because this is your new home. And so gone are the days where you're always wondering if you're going to have to pack up and move, because you don't know where you are with God. Some kind of fragile relationship with him. Paul says that's gone And now it's a solid, rock-steady and sturdy relationship with God. He says we boast in the glory of God now. You remember a few chapters ago where he says, he talks about Romans 1, we just boast in ourselves, we boast in our strength. Because my life revolves around me. Old world, old country, oppression, misery, darkness. That's what Paul's describing in Romans chapter 1 through 3. We had a lot of tough weeks, right? We were reading some heavy stuff. Paul's describing the old country. And he's saying, if you have, in a sense, put your weight in Jesus and he has carried you to this new place, what's normal for you now is peace with God, is standing in grace, is boasting in God. The one we used to run from now becomes the one we brag about, the one we long for, the one we love more and more over our lives. And finally, he says in, in verse 11, we have now received reconciliation. You remember Romans 3. No one is righteous. No one seeks God. No one understands. All have turned aside. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Here Paul is saying the great reversal. There is something new that characterizes these, these people that Jesus has kind of taken up in his hands and is beginning to renovate us. Paul says now... We have been reconciled or made friends with God. No more enmity. No more falling short in the eyes of God. You measure up if you're in Jesus because Jesus measures up. That is secure. It's invincible. 
It's indestructible. Okay, so these are the things that Paul is talking about, the new normal. Now, we need to wind down and finish with this because, like I said, with those immigrants that got there back in the turn of the century, you read accounts of this. You read books about what life was like in New York City, little Jamaica, or little Italy, or, little, or Chinatown. You go there even to this day, and it's, it's a hard existence. It's a, it's a faint-hearted existence uh, for a lot of these people. Um, and, and, and it's easy for them, even these immigrants who remember what the oppression and the slavery was like in the old place, they wanted to come to the new place. But it's easy for them, even in the new place, the free place, the place where there's potential, where there's life, it's easy for them to kind of long for the old country. It's easy for them to be surrounded by kind of the hardship, the suffering, the poverty of this place. And like I said earlier, it's easy for them to kind of emotionally, sometimes they feel like nothing's really changed. Uh, And so here's how Paul is an awesome pastor. Paul can always read your mind in a sense. It's the benefit of having the Holy Spirit uh, lead you in what you write and inspire you. Paul can read your mind, and whether you know it or not, your heart is suspicious in three particular areas with this sermon tonight. All right? And because uh, if, if any of us know this passage, we can read each other's hearts too. There's three places where Paul pushes back at us extra hard, and that's, that's where I'm getting this from. Paul doesn't say, hey, there's three places you're suspicious that this is really true. Here's how we know it, though. There's three particular places in this passage where Paul goes into logic mode. And he says, hey, let's argue about something because you're not going to believe me. Or you might, you might tonight say, man, that's awesome. Thanks for the reminder. Tomorrow morning, you've talked yourself out of it again. Old ways, old thoughts, old patterns come back and they eclipse all the new. So the three places that Paul kind of pushes back, and we'll go through this quickly and wrap it up. The first, these three doorways that doubt comes in. So what Paul is doing with arguing with us is he's locking those three doors. The first doorway is this, the doorway that doubt comes through. Doubts about God's salvation. Okay, I'll, I'll run through these and I'll, I'll kind of tell you the questions that come into our mind from them. But doubts about God's salvation. Doubts about your security in the Christian life. And doubts about our suffering. The first, doubts about God's salvation. The kind of questions that our heart just kind of bubbles out of us. Either through fear or frustration or discouragement or depression or anger or cynicism. The way these questions trickle out, they sound like this. Did God get the right address when he wrote all these promises that we've been talking about at RUF every Tuesday night? You ever ever gotten a piece of mail that's just unbelievable? It's like cash. It's like a birthday card or something. And you open it and it's got like a hundred bucks in there. And you're like, awesome. And then you read the card and you're like, oh, that's not me. Someone else. And then you read the front of the envelope and it's to your neighbor. And you're like, oops, got to bundle that back up and send it back to him. (laughs) It was good news, but the wrong address. And so it didn't matter to you. And it was almost like worse news than before. You wish you'd never seen that hundred dollars. Um, Paul knows your heart because Jesus knows your heart. And what he knows about us uh, is that we, will, we are prone to think that God has gotten the wrong address when he tells you, unrighteous person, you, sinner, you, sick, all people, Jesus explicitly says he came to say, you will begin to kind of read the fine print and talk yourself out of these promises like a great lawyer. 
And you'll be left with nothing. You'll have a great gospel for everybody else at New Mexico State, but none for you. And you'll be happy to talk about Jesus with other people, but even talking about him will make you sad because you're like, I don't taste that myself. And Paul is in on this, and he knows it. Uh, Really quick, let me tell you what other questions come up from the other two doubts, and then I'll dig a little bit deeper. Doubts about our own security. These questions are like, will I make it to the end? Am I going to get to the finish line, so to speak? Is God going to finish what he started in me? Because you're like, given my track record, given this past week or this semester, ain't looking like I'm getting there. Given my own resources, my own strength, the odds look pretty doubtful. And so you either go into hyper overdrive to get to the finish line yourself, or if you're a sensitive conscience, you probably give up in despair. You feel like you're at the back of the pack. Everybody else is so far in front of you. Why even keep running? Paul knows you because Jesus knows you. And Jesus will not let you leave tonight with half a gospel or a gospel or good news just for other people. The third is doubts about our suffering. When life gets hard, when it gets confusing, do you think God's punishing you? Or let me rephrase that. When life gets hard, when life gets confusing, something somewhere inside of you thinks God is punishing you, or he's not there, or he's not good. Paul knows you because Jesus knows you. Jesus is not going to let you get out of the room with half of a gospel. And so really quick, how does he speak to it in the passage? How does he push back and argue back? Well, he says this about our doubts about God's salvation, kind of the questions, did God get the right address? Can I open up this package and it's for me? Uh, read verses eight through six, uh, 6 through 8 with me real quick. He says, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he kind of puts on his logic hat and he says, hey, follow with me real quick. Listen to this argument. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, basically what he's saying is even for an awesome guy or a great girl, people aren't, are, are very unlikely to give their life for that person. They will not give their life for an unrighteous or a bad person. Somebody out there somewhere might be sacrificial enough to lay down their life for a good person. But, here's his logic, God, when did God lay his life down for you? While you were a sinner. He goes on to say, while you were his enemy, when you were powerless. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, God inspected you. He saw you. He knew you. And then Jesus laid his life down for you. There's the temptation to think that Jesus laid his life down for you or decided that he would do it after he saw you all cleaned up and pretty. At your best. Paul is saying Jesus decided to lay down his life for you when he saw you at your worst. You ever seen how many returns are at the pile at Walmart or Home Depot or Target? You ever seen the returns department? There are barrels full of stuff. Because we are people who have buyer's remorse. And we have great joy in taking stuff out of a store 
and then getting home and realizing, I don't really want this. Or you look at the product and you see it's broken, or you see, I don't really need this, I'm going to take it back. And we do the same with people, right? We date until it gets hard, send them back to the returns department. With husbands, with wives, with jobs, with ministries, with churches, when it gets hard, take it back. Take it back to the returns department. Um, You need to know that God looked at you before he brought you into his family. He saw what he was getting into. He knew what he was getting into. Powerless, sinner, enemy, weak. And then he acted. Get the chronology right. Get the order right. Or you will drown in a lifetime of despair. Because the alternative is, I've got to keep God happy with me so that he won't return me. God looked at you and God looked at Jesus. Paul's going to talk a lot more about this exchange as we go. We can't talk about it all tonight. But those are the two people God was looking at when he made you come alive. And God will never return Jesus because Jesus has no defect. He is perfect. And God has given you all of Jesus' merit, all of his righteousness. That's why you're invincible now. That's why you're indestructible now. That's why you stand in grace. All right? That's the first doubt. The second is we doubt the security in our relationship with God. Where does Paul talk about this quickly? When we ask the question, will I make it to the end? Will I last? How in the world can I keep going? feels like I'm in a marathon, and every time I get close to the end, they keep moving back the line. How in the world am I going to finish? Well, read with me verse 9 through 11. Since we've now been justified by his blood... Okay, since we've now been justified, that's the new normal, new reality, everything we've been talking about. Since that's the truth, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Jesus? Then he gets back into, in in verse 11, um, if God has, basically, if God has shown us grace while we were sinners, now that we are reconciled, now that we're innocent in his eyes, how much more do you think he's going to save us by his life? This is the old parent principle. Uh, Jesus says in the Gospels, your father is wicked. He's assuming you had a dad that loved you. I know that's not the case for everybody, but his point still stands. Jesus says, your fathers who loved you, they're evil. But even though they were evil, they still gave you good things. They still worked for and sacrificed for your prosperity. Okay, And Jesus says, how much more will your father in heaven, who is not evil, provide for you? That's kind of the the way he's working us through this and wrestling with your doubts. Uh, Paul is saying, if God gave to you, loved you, moved towards you at your worst, now that you're at your best in Jesus, it's inconceivable that he would treat you worse than he did when you were his enemy. There's a change of posture, in a sense, in how he relates to you now, and it's secure. The last thing is suffering. We'll pick this up again a lot in Romans 8 because Paul wants to come back and talk more about it when we get to Romans 8. He brings it back up. But if you... Suffering is anything that disorients you. It doesn't have to be cancer. It doesn't have to be medical. It doesn't have to be some huge, debilitating thing that explodes in your life. Suffering is anything that disorients you. It could be a lack of sleep the night before. It could be a family dynamic that just never gets better. 
It could be you're not as smart as your other classmates and you have to work doubly as hard. Suffering is anything that makes you wonder where God is and if he's good. Now, Paul says suffering in the old life, the old land, was futile. Okay? Remember the people who busted their butts, broke their backs, working all day long, seven days a week, and it led to nowhere. No benefit, no money, no becoming boss one day. Futile. Paul says in this new land, suffering is redemptive. Suffering is constructive, not destructive. Because now suffering passes through your father and his hands And he redeems all of the pain. And he cleans all of the pricks before it ever comes to you. So whatever confusion, complexity, pain, sickness, sadness, groaning that you experience, you have to know God has filtered it. He has purified it. And nothing got through that filter of his love that will harm you. He doesn't say it doesn't hurt. He doesn't say it's not seemingly debilitating, but he says it's redemptive. Paul says this suffering leads to hope, which leads to character, which le- or perseverance, which leads to character, which leads to a hope that doesn't leave you high and dry, i.e. not a fragile, wishful thinking kind of hope, but a sturdy hope that comes true. Suffering for the Christian is only redemptive. You don't get a say in the matter. God didn't ask you, this will be redemptive if you play ball with me. He said, suffering in your life will purify you, will bring you and make you more like Jesus. Any of that suffering. That's what suffering is in this new normal, this new life. Okay? So don't leave this place with the same doubts intact that you came in the room with tonight in your, relation, in, in your perception of God's salvation in your perception of your security in the Christian life uh, or in your perception of suffering. We need to pray that Jesus will use what he just spoke to us that will push it deep into our hearts because we want to be people who embrace the new land, who learn the language, who learn how to do life in this new place. So let's pray to that end. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you you are the ship, the strong and sturdy ship that picked us up where we were, or tonight, for those who do not know you, you call them to the harbor to step on the ship, to trust that you, will, you are able to do what you say you were able to do, that you are able through your death and your resurrection to carry dead people to a new land of life. Uh, Lord, we need help kind of assimilating to the culture of this new life, to believing this new normal, to fighting our doubts, um, to settling and sinking our roots in this new place. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit that you say you have poured into us, we pray that you would do these very things we ask of you. We ask this in your name. Amen.